from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 9, Sierra Online. From the beginning, I recognized that Sierra was in a different industry than most. We were selling creativity. Ken Williams, interview by Philip Young, 2006. They allowed me to program Ultima 2 the way I wanted. They even included in the contract that they would let me put in a cloth map with the game along with the documentation. Richard Garriott, interview for the Wizard Journals, summer 1984. I thought that this was just something to do for a little bit. In fact, a couple of years later, when I was making the decision to drop out of college, which I sort of had to do because I was failing classes, my family was like, well, of course, you should go pursue that. There's no college degree for that, but surely this will end. And when it does, you can go back to school, finish your degree, and go get a real job. Richard Garriott, interviewed by Tom Caswell for Game Zone, 2016. Roberta and Ken Williams got married very young, at the ages of 18 and 19, respectively. They had met by chance during a double date. After only two evenings, Ken realized that he was more interested in the girl his friend was dating than the one that he was dating. Immediately showing some of the qualities that would distinguish him in the following years, determination first of all, Ken cut to the chase, called Roberta, and asked her out. Within a year, the two were married. When Roberta became pregnant, Ken was a university student with little income and decided to make a radical change to his life. It was the early 1970s, and the market for mainframes and the sale of timesharing services were among the most lively and profitable of businesses. Ken saw the possibility of finding a good job and decided to attend a nine-month course in programming. It paid off. He managed to advance and achieve some economic stability. Meanwhile, his family had expanded with the arrival of DJ, born in 1973. Unfortunately, Ken's income was never quite enough, and this led him to look for ways to earn extra money, mainly via collaborations and consulting. Roberta's life was far from perfect as well. Relegated to the home, the young mother felt bored as a housewife. However, something suddenly brightened up her grey existence for a few weeks. For work reasons, Ken had installed a terminal connected to a mainframe at home and had showed Roberta the video game Colossal Cave Adventure, the inspiration for the creators of Zork and for many other developers in the 70s and 80s. The game didn't impress Ken, who found it boring, not appreciating the logic of its puzzles. Roberta, on the contrary, developed a deep interest in it, and sometimes forgot to do housework or missed out on caring for her children. A second child, Chris, was born in 1979, at least until she had solved all the game's puzzles. Colossal Cave Adventure put stress on the family during the time as she was completely absorbed in her new hobby. Once she had finished the game, however, life returned to something close to normal. With the release of the Trinity computers, a momentous change was set in motion that would transform Ken's life entirely. In 1977, more and more professionals and entrepreneurs were ready to buy one, to free themselves from the costs of renting teletypewriters and timesharing services that giants like GE charged dearly for. A big challenge was the lack of software, forcing most microcomputer enthusiasts to learn BASIC and to write programs to fit their needs. This changed in 1979 with the release of VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet software, a tool so useful and desired that it would become one of the first killer applications, making sales of the Apple II, which it ran on, skyrocket. Ken understood that the emerging new market was an incredible opportunity to get rich by having the right combination of ideas, products, determination, and skill. He was keen on success, and as for the right idea, he decided it would be the programming language Fortran. 
aware that programmers like Richard Garriott and Bill Budge had to choose between either the limited basic language or the challenging and laborious assembly language to create their own software on the Apple II, Ken was convinced that a Fortran compiler on the Apple II would enable programmers to work with a powerful and efficient yet not too complex language. Microsoft had become the reference point for basic interpreters on microcomputers and had managed to impose their main product on a good portion of the market. Ken strongly believed that Fortran had an even greater potential. With Ken bringing home a TRS-80 from the office, Roberta soon discovered more games, like the one that had made her lose so many nights of sleep. This time it was video games written by Scott Adams, a pioneer of the text adventure game. Roberta found these irresistible. Having played many of the games available on the market at the time, Roberta considered creating her own. She explained the project to her husband, who was still working on his Fortran endeavor. He expressed interest, but pointed out that it would take something revolutionary to break through in the market. Roberta already had something in mind. She had pondered for a long time about how much nicer it would be to draw scenes other games were describing in words only. Ken agreed, and they started working on it. The Apple II had a new and expensive accessory at the time, retailing for $199, which would make creating drawings a lot easier. The VersaWriter, as it was called, was the precursor to today's graphics tablets, being able to record shapes drawn by the user. It wasn't particularly precise, and the arm mechanism the user had to move was difficult to master, but Roberta used it with enthusiasm to draw the scenes she had in mind while writing her first computer adventure. With Mystery House, released in 1980, the couple created the genre of graphic adventure games and started their own entrepreneurial adventure. The titles written by Roberta became an unexpected success, and Online Systems, the company founded by Ken in 1975 as a consulting practice, became a video game studio. In just one year, their company had hired about 20 people, and by 1982, they had moved their headquarters and its small community of dedicated developers to a custom-made chalet. Roberta's games, without exception, yielded huge profits, and the company seemed set to become one of the most important players in the gaming industry. Even IBM the giant from Armonk, New York, offered the Williams an agreement to bring Roberta's brilliant adventures onto their new PC Junior platform. Bold and innovative at Online Systems, soon renamed to Sierra Online, Richard's requests seemed reasonable. After spending nearly a million dollars building a chalet for a hundred employees, the Williams did not feel discouraged by Garriott's stringent condition to include a fabric map with his new game. Even the slowness with which Richard had completed his first games, a sore point that had discouraged more than one publisher, did not intimidate the Williams. Having employed a large number of programmers and having several games under development, they could afford to give Gary at the time he needed to work. They were also not worried about cash flow, as their accounts were kept in the green by the high sales of Roberta's games. So, Richard signed a contract with Ken Williams. By April of 1982, he would deliver a full game, and online systems would publish it in a professional and rich package, just as the programmer wanted. The agreement also included an option for the Williams to go and recover the rights for Akalabeth and Ultima directly from CPCC, and to proceed with a re-release of both titles. In the case of Ultima, this would guarantee good earnings, since the title was still in its first year of release. As soon as the latest title for CPCC was finished, Richard immediately set to work on a sequel to Ultima. To improve upon the first installment, his only option was to learn assembly language before starting with the actual task of programming. To achieve faster and better results, he needed a good mentor, and decided to turn to an old acquaintance from CPCC. In the previous year, 
Tom Lurz had distinguished himself by programming Appaloids, a game very similar to Atari's Asteroids, but with apples instead of asteroids. Entirely written in assembly, Appaloids was the classic example of how the video game industry was sometimes still run in an amateurish way. Companies often ended up copying each other openly with little respect for the work of others. Soon, everything would change and Atari, along with many other companies, would start resorting to the courts. Lurz had already helped Richard write Ultima's manual, and now did his best helping Garriott to master the new language in an intensive programming course that lasted almost a month during the summer of 1981. He made sure Garriott could finally set aside BASIC for the better, enabling him to directly access the hardware of the Apple II and use it as efficiently as possible. Using this different programming language, Richard had no choice but to rework his game again. As he had done many times with his university project D&D and then again with Ultima, Richard rewrote his entire program to create an even better game. The return to school, however, was another source of trouble for Richard. His school performance began to suffer as a consequence. Richard was already thinking about leaving university for good. The biggest obstacle to this was his father, Owen, who would hardly accept a dropout. Regretfully, Richard continued trying to combine work life with the high expectations of his parents, but it was clear that the situation was only going to continue to deteriorate. Richard had learned new tricks of the programming trade from Tom Lurz, and over time improved his skills by collaborating with fellow programmers at Sierra Online. And, thanks to practice, while writing Ultima 2, slowly turned into an assembly expert. In 1981, he had to attend an assembly language course and thought he could get the highest mark while putting in little effort. After all, he was a professional programmer with two commercial successes under his belt. What Richard didn't foresee was that the assembly course would not be held on an Apple II, his favorite platform, but on a much more powerful computer, Commodore's SuperPet 9000. The SuperPet was a machine designed for education, the result of a curious collaboration between Commodore and the University of Waterloo. It was an expensive and powerful machine equipped with two CPUs, a MOS 6502 and a Motorola 6809, and had much more RAM than Trinity's microcomputers. In comparison to the Apple II's 6502, the 6809 processor had powerful additional instructions. Thanks to his experience, Richard was able to complete assignments using only the 6502. When the teacher began to evaluate his homework negatively, Richard was unable to cope with the disappointment. His programs were working, and he didn't feel the need to study the additional Motorola 6809 instructions. Hoping to dissuade Richard from completing tasks unconventionally, the teacher increasingly marked each of his assignments with a lower grade. Stubbornly, Richard did not deviate from the path he had taken, and when he finally received an F, he decided that he had had enough and was ready to leave university. His father, Owen, wasn't ready for his son's sudden change of mind. Richard's family had a higher-than-average education level. His father had been a respected university lecturer and a famous astronaut. His mother was an artist, and both of his older brothers were studying as well. In particular, Robert Garriott had just obtained a master's degree at MIT and was determined to pursue further academia while gaining experience at major companies such as Texas Instruments. Richard's dropping out after only obtaining a high school diploma was not a viable option in the minds of his parents. Richard did not immediately face his father, but first confided in his older brother. Evaluating the situation in a practical way, Robert gladly accepted his younger brother's aspirations. Thanks to his master's degree in economics, Robert was perhaps the most suitable person to understand that a career in the software industry could guarantee Richard a bright future. Likewise, Richard's mother Helen, who had helped Richard so much since his first venture, designing the cover of the version of a Calibeth sold to Computerland, testing the next games, and giving advice, was receptive to Richard's aspirations. Being an artist herself, 
and with Richard being the most imaginative and creative of her children, she had no difficulty understanding his reasoning. She formed a family alliance to support Richard in the face of his biggest obstacle, convincing Owen that university was not the best choice for his son. It's not hard to imagine Owen's reaction to the unexpected news. Despite the support of a large part of his family, Richard's father didn't budge easily. According to his understanding, it was not only an unexpected turning point in Richard's life, but a defeat that would divert him from the right path. For Owen, video games were just a fad, an expensive pastime with no future. And Richard's choice to pursue their development would only lead him to regret the time and opportunities lost once they had gone out of fashion. In times past, when Richard had entered his father's studio or the principal's office to propose a compromise, he had always come out with a good deal. This time it was Richard's turn to accept an uncomfortable agreement. He would move to Hudson University and could only continue to write games if he was successful studying part-time. Otherwise, he would have to give up game design and return to full-time study. On the bright side, he would have time to program again. And returning home had its advantages, as it allowed Richard to meet old D&D friends and get help in testing his games. Ken Arnold also returned to the development team and helped with programming. Curiously, Richard's passion for computer science and game creation had brought many of his D&D buddies closer to the world of game design. Keith Zabalui, Richard's neighbor, who had helped design the title screen for Acalabeth, had started programming and was ready to help him do more than just test the new title. Chuck Boucher, one of his classmates, recruited for the first D&D campaign after returning from his stay at Oklahoma University, was also interested in programming and published Brain Teaser Boulevard through CPCC, thanks to a contract provided by his friend. Richard's passion was contagious, and his personality had a strong influence on all those around him. Finally returning home and partly freed from the cumbersome burden of university, Richard began to think about how to organize his new game, and slowly a plot took shape based on the map from a movie he had seen the year before, Time Bandits, an English fantasy comedy directed by Terry Gilliam, starring former members of Monty Python, and guest stars such as Sean Connery. Richard decided to take inspiration from this film and went so far as to watch it several times in the cinema in order to copy the map as the base of the story with the help of some friends. According to Richard, Since I wanted to have time travel in Ultimate 2, when Time Bandits first came out, before it was on video, I actually went night after night to the Dollar Theater with pad and pencil to draw a copy of their map to see if it had any logic to it. It sort of did, but not really. After I did all this, it came out on video, so it was a total waste of time. The plot of Time Bandits involves a group of robbers using portals to travel through time and to distant places, enriching themselves in the process. In order to use the map from the film, Richard needed a plot that made sense and, if possible, had a link to the first Ultima. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash podcast or at spam 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 humbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T H E I R A dot I T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A N D R E A C O N T A T O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter.
I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.